Hello. We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ, and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Have you ever met somebody that when they start talking, everybody else shuts up? <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm a talker, and, you know, that's a, that's a good thing, I guess, since I want to preach God's word. Um, but, you know, when I start talking, people, I don't have that kind of effect on people. Um, you know, they don't just shut up and listen to what I have to say. Um, but my grandfather is a man very much like that. He's a man of very few words. Um, and he doesn't waste them. And so whenever Grandpa Murdoch starts to say something, it doesn't matter how many people have been talking, what's been going on, all of a sudden the room is quiet and everybody's listening. And, And the reason is, is that whenever Grandpa Murdoch starts to say something, you know that something different is about to happen. Whenever Grandpa Murdoch starts to talk, you know that it's not going to be the just usual noise that you've been hearing throughout your various conversations. Whenever Grandpa Murdoch starts to say something, um, it's, it's going to be one of two things. It's going to be something really important that you need to understand um, from his many years of living life and uh, far greater wisdom than I would have. Um, or... Uh, He's about to say something really funny that you're probably not going to get because you're not as smart as he is. <laughs> um, but the point is, is that whenever Grandpa Murdoch starts talking, everybody else starts listening, and oftentimes they're amazed at what he has to say because it's unique, and it holds a certain kind of an authority that when everybody else is talking, their words don't have. And so as we jump into Mark chapter 1 tonight and continue our series, what we're going to see right from the get-go is that uh, when Jesus opens his mouth and when he teaches, when he starts talking, uh, there's something different about it. There's something completely different about this man when he comes on the scene and starts to teach in the synagogue uh, that's completely different than all the other teachers they had heard. And so, and it's because when Jesus speaks, he speaks with an authority that is original and not derived from another. And so let's, let's jump in in verse 21 of chapter 1 of Mark. And here's what we read. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. 
So we're going to go a little bit further in chapter 1 tonight, but I want to stop there and point out a few things. So Jesus comes into Capernaum, uh, a town in Galilee, and, and Mark says that he immediately starts teaching on the Sabbath. And so uh, in a synagogue, uh, you'd often, the way their services worked, uh, you often had um, some prayers and some readings of scripture. Uh, then you probably had, you, they probably read from the scripture in the Hebrew originally, and then they would have an Aramaic uh, translation of that read. Um, and then somebody would get up, much like I'm doing right here, and they would give some teaching, a homily or a sermon, uh, based on what was read. And so, <clears throat> typically, it would have been a scribe or someone who held authority in the community, a religious leader, someone who could understand the law and what was taught and, and could teach. And these teachers would often uh, quote various people. So, uh, similar to how maybe you've heard in one of my sermons, I've quoted like Matt Chandler or Tim Keller or somebody that uh, people respect and as they come to understanding the Bible. And so the scribes would quote, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and Rabbi so-and-so said this, and they would kind of appeal to an authority that was not their own. And so what we have to understand here about what's happening is there's a difference between an original authority and a derived authority. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he starts teaching and he holds an original authority because he's God in the flesh and he's teaching these people. Whereas the scribes held a derived authority. And so just a way to help us understand that, I think, would be... Um, so for the last couple of years, I've had the privilege of working alongside Pastor Luke and assisting him in various ways. And uh, Luke, as the senior pastor of this church, holds a, a kind of authority that's been given to him by God and by us as the church body um, that I don't have. Um, and so if Luke tells me to go and do something on his behalf, then as I do that action uh, or complete that task, I'm acting with a kind of authority, but it's not the same kind of authority that Luke has. Does that make sense? So whenever Luke sends me to do something, he may be in investing a kind of authority upon me for that specific task or item. And so my authority in doing that is completely derived from what he's asked me to do. Whereas if Luke himself does something, then the authority is original to him. Does that make sense? So similarly with uh, the scribes, they would have appealed to other teachers who have taught the law before, or they would have uh, even just appealed to the words of Moses, the things that were read. Um, and everything that they did would have been derived from the authority of another. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he starts teaching. And as you read elsewhere, he says, you've heard it said this, but I say to you this. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and he's not quoting all these other people, and he's not acting with an authority that's derived from others. He's acting with his own authority because he's God in the flesh. And so people are astonished, and they're amazed when Jesus speaks because it's completely different than anything they've been hearing. And so... Jesus comes on the scene and starts teaching with authority. And then look what happens. You're going to see that not only was his teaching with authority, but he acted in authority to demonstrate the authority his teaching had. 
And so you see a, a demonized man speak out. A man with an unclean spirit. An unclean spirit is just another word for demon, uh, evil spirit. And he, he cries out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And notice that, you'll, you'll have to notice throughout Mark's gospel, that um, the only people who are getting it and understanding who Jesus really is are uh, demons, <laughs> and evil spirits, and then uh, you have, around the middle of the book, Peter makes this confession of Jesus being the Messiah, the Christ, um, and, and even there, Peter, as a disciple, a follower of Jesus, still has a bit of a misunderstanding of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, what it means when Jesus says he's coming to fulfill the promises that he said he was fulfilling, and what it means for Jesus to do that in the way he was going to do it. And so Peter misunderstands, thinking that Jesus is coming on as the Messiah who's going to overthrow Rome, who's going to establish the kingdom. And Jesus comes on the scene, and he is preaching the kingdom, and he is establishing the kingdom, but he does it in a way that Peter and the other disciples aren't quite grasping. He does it through suffering and through service and ultimately through dying on a Roman cross. And so... Jesus does things in a completely different way than people were expecting. And so throughout the Gospels, you just see over and over and over again that everybody seems to be getting it, but these 12 guys who are following him. <laughs> and I think there's probably a lesson in there for us as well, isn't there? And oftentimes, uh, we, we think we understand clearly what God is up to in our lives. Or we think we understand clearly what God ought to be up to in our lives. We have these perspectives of him and what he should be doing. And then sometimes he doesn't do it that way. And all of a sudden we start doubting and we're like, what's happening? And, and we're in the same place that we read in the Gospels that Peter was where he's like, freaking out, and then he denies Jesus three times because he doesn't understand what's happening. And but here and throughout Mark's gospel, you're going to see that the, the demons recognize him for who he is, the Holy One of God, the one sent by God, the one who holds divine authority because he is God, come to bring about salvation, to restore the kingdom, and to deliver people from bondage and sickness and to bring about all that God has promised. And so you'll see that they understand who Jesus is, just as this demon does here, and speaks out of this man. And, and then later, we're going to see that the first person who finally realizes who this man is, is at the crucifixion, a Roman soldier, the person who you would least expect to be the first one to finally get it, is the one who looks at Jesus and says, this truly was the Son of God. And look at what Jesus says. He's, he rebukes the demon. He says, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. And so let's just talk about... Uh, the demonic spiritual warfare for just a second. Because um, I think that, I think C.S. Lewis said this so well. Uh, we tend to have two common errors 
about the demonic, about spiritual beings, about spiritual warfare, even about the supernatural. We either are completely obsessed with it and think that there's a demon under every corner and nook and cranny, um, and we blame everything on that which is spiritual and supernatural, or we almost ignore it completely. And so, do you have that quote? Yep. Okay, so he says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And so we have to pause when we come across a passage like this. Because in our Western worldview, uh, it's not our inclination to think that these types of things are actually a part of our reality. And that idea could not be further from the truth. That idea finds its origins in the Enlightenment, where the way we started to think in the West was that everything that can be known is only known through empirical, scientific investigation. And that just eliminates a whole aspect of what God has created and done. And so we tend to think that these things are ridiculous, that they don't happen anymore. But it's not true. And I'm sure that I'm probably not the only one that's ever encountered or had any kind of an experience uh, that would remind them of something like this. And so... Before Brittany and I moved here, we lived in St. Louis, and I was doing an internship there at a church. And we led an outreach ministry from that church in a, a, a South City, St. Louis. So it was a very, uh, the people were very friendly and neighborly to one another. Um, and they were even uh, kind to us once we got to know some of them. Um, but the neighborhood in which they lived was very dark. Uh, very destructive, and there were a lot of things happening there, which is why they knew their neighbors so well, because they had to look out for one another. And so in this neighborhood, we did these outreaches, and we would go door to door, and we would invite people to block parties and things that we were hosting uh, not, not far from them. And so uh, this one day, we're going door to door, and we see this house as we're walking by. We almost missed it. Because this house looked like it was abandoned. It almost looked like more of a shack than a house. And, you know, it was dirty. Uh, things were broken. Um, and it didn't even have a doorbell. Instead of a doorbell, it literally had a hole in the wall. And it said, press here, written in really sloppy writing. It looked like I had written it. Um, and so we thought, well, you know, maybe somebody still lives there. And, you know, let's invite them. We're having a block party, free food and good stuff. And so... We're like, all right, let's go up there. And you know, one of us who was finally brave enough to put their finger inside the house uh, pushed the hole or whatever it was. And this old man comes to the door, and I'm kind of surprised at this point. I didn't really believe that anyone could actually live there. Um, and so he comes to the door, and you know, he opens the the main door, and then there's a screen door still there, you know, and, you know, if you're smart in a dangerous neighborhood, um, you see what's happening before you open that door to you, um, and so he's doing that, and we introduce ourselves, we're so-and-so from uh, Cross Point Church, you know, down the highway, we're having an outreach here in your community today, uh, we'd love it if you'd come to our block party, there's going to be free food and stuff, and, 
Um, and initially, he's, you know, when we're talking about the free food and the games and things like that, he's cool, you know. Um, and that's interesting to him. And, and then we start to talk about why we're there. So whenever we mention Jesus' name or uh, that we're part of the church um, and that we're doing these things uh, because of the gospel and because we want to see the gospel in this community, all of a sudden his demeanor changes. And so he had started to kind of open the door and be friendly with us, but as soon as we mention the name of Jesus, he slams the door shut and his whole demeanor changes and he's angry all of a sudden and he starts to tell us to go away. And, and so we're like, okay, that's kind of odd. Um, and so we're like, well, hey, my name's Grant. We'd love to see you there. And we introduce ourselves again, make sure he knows our names and where we're going to be. And, you know, we ask what his name is. And uh, all of a sudden he looks at us and he says, well, I've had many over the years. And he starts listing various names of differing genders and time periods. And all of a sudden, we're starting to be a little creeped out because um, he slammed the door on us when we started talking about Jesus, and all of a sudden, he's telling us he has these various names and getting really upset with us. And, and so after we walked away from that, we kind of thought about it for a minute, and we wondered, man, I, I wonder if there was something going on there something spiritual, something maybe demonic even. And, and so we prayed. Um, and, and I think that it's very possible that that's what was happening there because in this community you saw all sorts of brokenness and darkness. You saw prostitution of varying kinds, transvestite prostitution. Um, I would not be surprised if there was a kind of trafficking going on in that area. We saw drug deals during the middle of the day in plain sight even when we were having block parties at which there were children playing with bubbles and games that we'd handed out. And so we went into this community where there's lots of fear and there's lots of darkness, and we had this encounter with this individual, and it reminded us that spiritual things are very, very real. And we didn't cast a demon out of him or anything, but we prayed for him. And we acknowledge that Jesus has authority even over the most dark places and the most difficult things that even you and I may not comprehend completely. And so I think we have to be careful to avoid both of those errors, completely ignoring it or obsessing over it. Because we look at what Jesus says and we know that he's king over all and that he teaches with authority, and the gospel that he proclaims is the gospel that we proclaim about his rule and reign. Let's move down a little bit further here. Look at what he says. Look at what Mark says next. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And Simon is just another name for Peter. So if you're familiar with Peter, same guy. Uh, now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. 
And he healed many who were sick with various diseases cast, and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And so Peter's mom is sick. And as soon as Jesus gets there, uh, Mark uses this word immediately, again and again and again, right? Which we've already noted. And I had a, I had a good conversation with Ken Hine the other day, and he pointed out to me that uh, as, as Mark goes throughout his account, uh, he finds different ways to show us that Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah, that Isaiah prophesied about. And, and I think one of the clearest ways you see that is in Mark 10, 45, where uh, Jesus says what he's about. Um, So he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus comes on the scene, not as this guy who's just going to completely obliterate all the Roman rule and establish his own. Um, he, can't, he comes and he establishes his rule, but he does it in a much different way, as we've talked about, by serving. And as, as Simon's mother-in-law lays ill, they come to Jesus with their request, asking him to heal her because they know he's been doing these sorts of things. And they believe that he's able to do it. And as they immediately told him about her, he comes and he takes her by the hand. And he lifts her up and the, the fever's gone. And it reminds me a lot of what God did with his servant Elijah in the Old Testament. So Elijah, if you remember, uh, was a prophet of God and he has this real like mountaintop experience where you know, God acts on his behalf in a mighty way and like shows his power against all the false prophets around him. And, and Elijah's thinking, man, some things are finally going to start to change for me. And, and then it's, it's not like right after that, you read that Jezebel has it out for him and wants him dead. And so Elijah has this mountaintop experience where like God shows up powerfully. And then all of a sudden over here, he's wanted dead and he's frightened. And so he, he runs, and he goes into the desert, he's afraid, he's terrified, and he's even depressed to the point where he basically says, God, just kill me. End it all right now. And he thinks he's no better than his father's, he thinks the way things are fleshing out is not how he had hoped. And, and what God does there, in the midst of Elijah's unbelief and distrust, even after seeing the great ways that God has worked on his behalf, is he sends a messenger to be with him, to give him some food, to give him what he needed, and to make sure that he rested. That's the kind of love and compassion that this God has for his people. And so when Jesus is asked if he'll heal Simon's mother-in-law, he touches her by the hand, and he lifts her up, and he has great compassion And so as we look at this tonight, we have to know that whenever we experience difficult things in life, whenever we have loved ones who are hurting or sick, and maybe even we're fearful that things are going to take a turn for the worse, we have to know that our God has this kind of a compassion for us. 
that he comes and he takes a woman by the hand and he lifts her up. And I'm not saying that every time we pray that God is going to heal. But what I am saying is that God is completely capable of doing this. And to not believe that is to not believe in the great authority of Jesus Christ, who is the servant who suffered all for us. And so we should bring our request to him. And we do that every Wednesday night. That's why we do this. It's because we believe this God has compassion. We believe that he is the suffering servant who suffered everything for us. And then look at her response. So she gets healed, and like, I don't know about you, but if, I, if God raised me up from something that I thought was going to kill me, I'd probably like have a party or something. But instead, she starts to serve. And so her immediate response to what the suffering servant has done for her is to serve him and to serve those who are with him. And so I think we have to learn from her example as well. You can't help but serve this God when you realize how he has served you and what he has suffered on your behalf. And so again, he, 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 the whole city gathers together and he starts to heal the sick and cast out demons and help those who are oppressed. And, and it says he healed many. And so Jesus is just continually serving and healing and helping. And then look at verses 35 through 38 as we wind down here. It says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And so let that hit you for a second, because Jesus, who has the authority to cast demons out and to literally take a woman who was sick and maybe on her deathbed and raise her up and do away with her illness and has been doing this kind of thing all night long till very late in the evening, this guy rises early in the morning to spend time with his father and to pray. And so if, if Jesus, who's the Lord of all, thinks that it's that important to pray, then I don't know how you and I can go days without doing it. And, and we do, don't we? I mean, often we do. We get so busy with life and so many things are happening and, and we completely forget about the one who leads us and guides us and has done everything for us. But Jesus gets some time alone with his Father because he knows that there's something even more important than raising up those who are sick and casting out demons. And it's his message. So we've seen the king's authority, we've seen the king's service, and now let's look at the message. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. So he's been gone for a long time praying. And everybody's coming and wanting to be healed and wanting to see him again. And look at what he says. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, 
that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went through all, throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And so it's not that he's not going to still be casting out demons and healing people as he goes other places, right? But as Peter and the other disciples and people are looking for him because there's other people wanting to be healed and delivered and things like that, Jesus says, let's go on to the next town. And it's because the reason he came to preach was, the reason he came was to preach, not just to heal, not just to deliver. And, and it kind of makes you wonder, why does he do that? Well, I think that Jesus knows that if we just get what we want from him, then we often forget about what we need from him. So if, if we pray for somebody, somebody to be healed from a sickness, um, then oftentimes we, we forget about the deeper spiritual realities that are even more uh, greater needs, more dire needs. So we pray for someone to be healed, and they get healed, and we forget about the brokenness and the sin that needs to be redeemed, and uh, they need to be restored to God. Uh, and in our celebration of something great that God did, we forget why he did it in the first place. And so Jesus wants to make sure that what is primary in his ministry is the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so he's going to do these things, but his primary purpose is to preach that the kingdom is at hand. And as we've noted, Mark presents Jesus in a very fast-paced, machine gun type of way, where he's just throwing out these things about who Jesus is and what Jesus does, and ultimately what Jesus says And I think part of the reason is that Mark understands how urgent it is for us to respond to this Jesus. And so many of you know, uh, last year, uh, Brittany and I drove through the night to get to my hometown where we were told that uh, my stepfather was going to pass away that evening. Um, He had been sick with cancer and his immune system was shot And he was in the hospital, and the doctor said, he's not going to make it out of this. Um, And so we were just praying that God would heal him, or even that God would just sustain his life so that we could get there. And we got there, and he had made a miraculous recovery. Uh, The doctors couldn't explain it. There was no reason that he should have recovered. God had answered our prayers, and he had been healed, and we were celebrating But I knew that that wasn't the end. That what Jeff needed was not just physical healing, but he needed to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And I prayed that this event where God showed mercy on him and brought healing to his body would be an event that would change him, that would point him towards his need for Jesus, and that he would understand that greater spiritual reality. And as I looked at his life the next few months, I don't know that that's what happened. I don't know that it didn't, but I can't confidently say that it did. And it wasn't a few months later 
and he had died of a sudden heart attack, and I had to preach his funeral with my three little brothers in the front row. And so it is incredibly urgent that we respond to this Jesus, to this suffering servant, to this Lord of all. Because our days are not endless in this life. And Mark presents him in a very fast-paced way, and he presents him very clearly so that you'll know who he is because he wants you to respond. And so tonight, that's the question I have for you, is have you responded to Jesus, and are you continuing to respond to who he is and what he's done for us? So let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us to understand who you are, all that you've done for us, and why you've done it for us. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would make yourself clear to us tonight. Lord, that you would make it clear what it means to walk in repentance and faith and to believe the gospel of the kingdom that you preached and that you've given us to share with others. So God, help us tonight to acknowledge your authority, your compassion and service for us, and to respond to your message by serving you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.